Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe. Those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. There's always a great conversation in your chat room, Ravinder, so tell us all about it. We do have great conversations going on in there, and we learn from each other, and sometimes we help each other out if we're, you know, we don't quite catch what was said on the air, then, you know, we get each other up to snuff uh, in the chat room and uh, yeah it's it's a great dynamic in there I learn a whole lot and it does bring a whole new dimension to whatever is being discussed on the air as well it makes it more real it brings it alive so if you can join us that would be good that is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat but please don't do that if you are driving or if your boss is mean (laughs) like yours huh (laughs) Absolutely. In this week's spotlight, I wish to discuss possibilities. I truly think of the mind as the ultimate frontier. There are so many potentials possible that it is staggering to consider. For instance, savant syndrome. What is it that happened when someone was struck in the head only to awaken a hospital, a mathematical genius, seeing the world in fractal geometry? What mechanism makes it possible for an autistic child with a limited vocabulary to correctly read the mind of their therapist and type words unknown to them, such as synesthesia? How is it possible for a child who has never learned things such as geography to know all about it? What are these minds tapping into? In our conversation last week with Professor Daryl Treffert, I asked him about just this. What mechanism can possibly explain this phenomenon? His thoughtful answer identified the issue. We simply don't know. There are theories, of course. Trefford's favorite is that the information is genetically passed, just as eye color and so forth. Now, this idea of memes being passed is not new, But can it be true that the information, the intelligence of our ancestors is passed along? And if somewhere in our genetic makeup there exists the memory of a mathematical genius, all we need is the right provocation, a blow to the head, frontal lobe dementia, etc., to tune the brain somehow and thereby open pathways that deliver the knowledge to us? Another idea Treffert and I explored has to do with the notion that the universe is information, intelligence, and somehow this intelligence is accessible, a bit like the collective unconscious model of Carl Jung. We tap into the information via some rare connection. Not long ago, I spoke with Professor Bill Bankston about his work using information to heal. Bill has conducted research into anomalous healing and has proven the effectiveness of his technique in 14 controlled animal experiments conducted in six university biological and medical laboratories. His healing research has produced the first successful full cures of transplanted mammary cancer and induced sarcomas in experimental mice by information transfer techniques that he has developed. He has also investigated assorted correlates to healing such as geomagnetic micropulsations and EEG harmonics and entrainment. 35 years of research and clinical experience shows that Bill's approach and method is a powerful energy therapy that can produce remarkable results for both people and animals with cancer as well as helping other physical and emotional problems. 
Now, here's the real point. He uses information, intelligence, to accomplish his healing. And this method doesn't require even the presence of the animal he is curing. How is this possible? Bill informs us that the universe is information intelligence. And by utilizing it, we can accomplish many things. Perhaps it is some sort of information field that we will discover both the brain and body can tap into for all sorts of things, ranging from healing to savant skills and abilities. Imagine a possible mind leak, individual mind to collective or one mind. What possibilities might that provide? One thing is for sure. The potential exists, is demonstrated by various anomalies, and yet not fully comprehended. My thoughts on this one. What are yours, Ravinder? Oh, that's a big one. I think, you know, I would hope that one day that question becomes the same as, you know, the idea of the caveman with a flashlight. Something that looks absolutely impossible to the caveman is now something that we take for granted. The fact is there are lots of these stories and they always fascinate me. You know, the person who has an accident and then they come out of their coma speaking a whole different language. You know, the idea right. that Professor Treffert had that it could be passed on genes and memes um, and there is someone in your ancestry who has this ability. Well, you know, that speaks to the ability to do something, but that doesn't necessarily speak to um, some of the abilities that we see. So the ability to l learn music is one thing, but to be able to just get up and play it, you know, well, that's, that's a whole different angle to the issue i i find it fascinating i, mean, I think for me the real question is this uh, the so-called tabula rasa if we come in and our minds are not blank slates so to speak okay and we have all this information it's already contained in the brain that's an entirely different way of seeing the human being the brain our evolution etc in the alternative, if what we're doing is tapping into some conscious field out there, well, then that also is an entirely new. Mm -hmm. And in either way, it is a very exciting uh, possibility. It is indeed. It is fascinating just thinking about it all. And, yeah, it's mind-blowing. <laughs> okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making the show successful. Our last show featured Professor Daryl Treffert, and we discussed his work and book, Islands of Genius, The Bountiful Mind. Jeremy wrote, I learned so much about Savant Syndrome during your show with Professor Treffert. I had never heard of many of the forms of Savant Syndrome that it takes. What a great guest. Alan wrote, this guest just blew me away. Bring him back, please. Beth wrote, genetic information in the Savant. So a distant relation had an ability in a particular area, and this is passed down and then somehow turned on. How interesting, to say the least, to say the least. Moving on, L wrote, I've been using your self-sabotage intertox CDs. They're making a positive difference. I am grateful to you for all your hard work. I am obviously interested in all things brain now. And Richard wrote, I was being led by the universe and listened. You usually do when you are on the bottom looking up and wanting out. I learned and got good at meditation first and then moved on to other things. Now I have a resume that I use, which includes your Intertalk CD programs. Well, good for you, Richard. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I invite you to opine by emailing me at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. We sincerely appreciate your comments and feedback. Now to this week's show, Darwin's Unfinished Symphony, How Culture Made the Human Mind, with our guest, Professor Kevin Leyland. Think about that title for a moment. How many of you considered the idea that culture, culture, makes the human mind? Think about the spotlight today. Um... What does it mean to say that culture makes the human mind? And, and, and in what kinds of way does it do that? Can culture actually drive, say, genetic evolution? If not, what then is meant when we say culture is making the mind? 
Well, our guest today will flesh this all out for us, but first, let me tell you a little about him. Kevin Leyland is Professor of Behavioral and Evolutionary Biology at the University of St. Andrews, where he is a member of the Center for Biological Diversity, the Center for Social Learning and Cognitive Evolution, the Institution for Behavioral and Neural Sciences, and the Scottish Primate Research Group. He has published over 200 scientific articles and 11 books on a wide range of topics related to animal behavior and evolution, particularly social learning, cultural evolution, and niche construction. He is an elected fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh. Edinburgh, I guess is how you say that, isn't it? Edinburgh. Yeah. A fellow of the Society of Biology and the recipient of both an ERC Advanced Grant and a Royal Society Wolfson Research Merit Award. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Kevin Leyland. Well, thank you very much, Eldon. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on your show. Well, thank you, sir. I've been looking forward to this. I really enjoyed your book. You have some thank tremendously challenging ideas, and I love the way you think. But we like to know three things on the show, Professor. Who's the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, then how would we use it? So to that end, let's begin by learning more about you. What inspired you to study social learning and cultural evolution? Well, um, I suppose a a very formative experience in um, the early part of my career was reading Darwin's Origin of Species, his classic book on evolution, where he lays out his theory um, of evolution through natural selection. And um, there's a a very famous passage, which is actually the very last uh, paragraph of the book, where Darwin talks about an entangled bank, which you can see from his window, replete with flowers and and bushes and and bees and birds, all beautifully entwined and, of course, all explained through the power of natural selection. And uh, having read this passage and been uh, suitably inspired, I looked out of my window. Unfortunately, I was a student in London at the time, right in the center of town. And I looked out on uh, skyscrapers and and streets and, and taxis and uh, I remember the workmen in the in the road using pneumatic drills, uh, lots of pollution and noise, and I thought, ah. Oh. Um, and for a fraction of a second, I was I was um, bitterly disappointed. But then I had this this insight, which which has stayed with me and inspired me throughout my career, which is no, all of that requires an evolutionary explanation too. And uh, you know, it struck me that the kind of explanations that were on offer were not really satisfactory ones to a, a biologist. It wasn't good enough to simply say, "Well, Workman made that skyscraper." We needed to know how it was possible for human beings to do an incredible thing like that. Because when you think about it, we can build all kinds of incredible structures uh, of such diverse natures, uh, and yet there's no other animal that can build anything other than you know what it's been selected to do. Like birds can build nests and bowers, and termites can, can construct mounds, but, but nothing else. So these kind of things uh, really had an impact on me uh, early in my career. I wanted to try and um, understand how it was possible for us to um, have the extraordinary mind that we have, produce the extraordinary culture that we have, how we can explain the evolutionary roots of our intelligence, our creativity, our language. You know, evolutionary biology is, is a field that sort of thrives on continuity. We, we like to explain um, the evolution of a trait in terms of the existence of a, a, another trait that's quite similar. Um, and this was a challenge when it came to our species because, um, you know, morphologically we might be pretty similar to our other apes, but when, when it comes to our mind, we seem quite different. We seem, we seem unique. Uh, our culture seems to set us apart. So that, of course, led me to want to understand the evolutionary roots of our cultural capability. When Darwin, you know, published The Origin of the Species, it triggered the most controversial debate over his account on higher faculties of human nature, you know, reason, mm-hmm. aesthetic, taste, culture, etc. Uh, how have your peers responded to you taking that on directly? Well, I, I, in general, uh, very well. People are very interested in the evolution of the human mind. And I'm far from the only uh, evolutionary biologist uh, who 
studies this topic. There's been a long history of investigation um, of the origins of the mind, the origins of intelligence, creativity, language. Um, so I, I'm just uh, the, the next guy in the sort of the conveyor belt of, of evolutionary biologists who've been who've been fascinated by these by these issues and drawn to investigate them. And but what's kind of exciting, I think, about this point in time is that. I feel like uh, there is a sense in which we have a coming together of insights across a number of different fields, and that many of us feel like um, we're closing in on a satisfactory explanation for uh, many of these issues, at least um, one that, that seems fairly plausible to us uh, for the first time. So that's why it's an exciting phase to um, uh, get into these issues. Now, I've talked to several evolutionary psychologists, a couple of evolutionary biologists, and, and they inform me, and this is, of course, in America, that they get a, you know, a fair amount of, um, I don't want to call it hate mail, but uh, there are religious groups who are distressed by this entire direction uh, because it discounts, of course, the idea that uh, you know, man was created by a quintessential being of some kind. Uh, have you faced any of that? Not really, no. I think I, I think there's less of it in the UK than than in uh, North America. I think we're a little bit protected from it uh, here. But I do wonder um, to what extent um, if if we had a richer evolutionary theory. Uh, and of course, all uh, evolutionary biology is a science, and all sciences are incomplete. We're constantly building up a, a richer understanding of, of the, the natural phenomenon that we investigate. And um, so, there's every reason to think that in a hundred years we'll have a better understanding of how evolutionary biology works. And I can't help but feel that uh, if we had a richer understanding of evolutionary biology, that we might be able to convince more people um, that uh, evolutionary explanations are, are really compelling when it comes to understanding um, the existence of human beings, which which are really quite extraordinary creatures. I mean, it, it, it's, it's hard to get across, I think, the, um, the extraordinary nature of our species, the, the way it's, it's kind of out of kilter with the rest of nature. And I can kind of sympathize with people who think um, there's something different about our species that requires a different kind of explanation. I mean, just think about our numbers. Um, you know, we are way out of kilter with the expectations for the number of animals and number of number of individuals expect for an animal of our size by, by several orders of magnitude. I mean, think, think about our range, too. We, we manage to forge a living and indeed thrive in virtually every region of the planet, including some incredibly inhospitable regions like like the Arctic or, or, or the deserts, so um, you know, given that we're doing that, we're we're putting men on the moon, we're we're building these urban metropolises. I think people have got good reason for thinking. Hang on, can can those standard kinds of evolutionary explanations really make sense of this stuff? We uh, indeed incredible I, I, beings, and, and, and I, for me, I guess it comes down to the to the idea of intelligence. But I want to get I want to get directly into your book. But first, I have to tell you, I was intrigued very much uh, by several of your ideas, and it, it led me to to present a question to you. You know, mm-hmm. and and I'm not you know, I guess the bottom line is this: evolution has brought us to where we are. <clears throat> And so all those qualities that we think of that are inherent to our brain, uh, that's a part of our, you know, evolution. Uh, how important, therefore, are mirror neurons to your theory? And if they are important, are they also just a part of the evolution of mind, in your view? Well, that's a, actually a really interesting question. I mean, there's a, there's a central idea which runs through my book, which is that there's been um, natural selection has favored efficient, accurate forms of copying. And this has driven the evolution of the primate brain and the evolution of primate uh, high intelligence, complex behavior that we see in humans. And of course, 
Um, and we, have, we have a number of reasons for thinking that, including some sort of computational studies which uh, have shown analytically that you can that, that, that kind of natural selection ought to be operating. But there's also a lot of um, data that's consistent with that argument too. So you can make the expectation that um, that if natural selection is is favouring accurate, efficient forms of copying, then you'd, you'd expect to see it favour certain structures or or capabilities in the primate brain that afford that. And what, what, what might those be? Well, um, better perceptual systems to the extent that that allows you to copy over, over greater distances or copy individuals who don't want to be copied or copy from the vantage point of safety. Um, the, the ability to sort of take in the visual inputs from other individuals performing behavior and translate those into motor outputs, which is which is critically necessary if you're going to engage in imitation and other forms of emulation. You'd expect it to favor other forms of sort of computational capabilities to uh, implement various uh, strategic forms of copying. All of these capabilities would only incidentally be manifest in, in bigger brains, but would nonetheless feed back to further enhance the efficiency and accuracy of copying. So we, we envisage there's been this kind of feedback loop which has been operating throughout the course of um, you know human evolution, and um, and it, it's kind of climaxed in humans, the most the most innovative species, the, the the species most reliant on on social learning and culture with the largest relative brains. Now, the kind of structure that you would envisage would be favoured by that kind of mechanism would include things like mirror neurons. And mirror neurons allow you to do precisely what I was describing about imitation. I mean, we take imitation for granted. Uh, it seems very intuitive to us that you can sort of see somebody else performing a task, think about riding a bicycle, for instance. You can see somebody riding a bike, and then you can have a go at doing that yourself. Okay. But the sensory experience of riding a bicycle yourself is entirely different from the sensory experience of observing another individual ride a bicycle. So you have to somehow connect those two in your brains. And mirror neurons are, are potentially important because they, they allow you to do that. All right. I have to ask you then, let's go directly to your book. Why Darwin's Unfinished Symphony? I mean, that's a strange name for a book on evolutionary biology, isn't it? I suppose so. Um, the, the, the point is that uh, I'm trying to understand the evolutionary origins of, of the human mind and its expression in our intelligence, our creativity, our language, our culture. And Darwin began the investigation of those topics some 150 years ago, but he himself confessed that his understanding of those issues was incomplete and, and fragmentary. Now, as I mentioned uh, in, uh, earlier, since that day, many evolutionary biologists have, have been drawn to the challenge and picked up the baton and run with it. Um, and I can't help but feel that we're that we're closing in on some sort of an answer. So. Um, Darwin's Unfinished Symphony is what I call that challenge of understanding the evolutionary origins of the human mind and its expression in culture. Now, I, you know, I looked you up, of course, on YouTube and the Internet and everything before we brought you in. We screen everybody and read your book. I found it most interesting that you have a YouTube video that is titled Darwin's uh, Unfinished Symphony, and it is a symphony. How, how did that come about? It, it, it is a symphony in what sense? It is music. It is just, you know, I think it's a minute and a half of nothing but music. Uh, I've got no idea. I didn't know that existed. I have to say. Oh, you didn't. <laughs> well, I tell you, we're going to play it in the chat room during our break, which is coming up here real quick. Maybe you can jump well, over to the chat room and take a look I'm about it. I'm delighted to hear it. <laughs> okay. But I can't take any credit for it at all. You can't take any credit. All right. <laughs> let me ask you. Let me ask you this. What makes your book, in your view, distinctive in its field? Well, I, I guess there's the, the emphasis on, on feedback. I mean, we're used to, when we give evolutionary explanations, thinking in terms of properties of environment selecting for properties in organisms, or the, the traits of organisms that we think of as adaptations for particular uh, jobs that you have to do in particular environments. 
And that's a sort of one-way causal error. And, and, and um, the emphasis that I have in my book is on a, on a feedback process. I've already hinted at that in talking about um, selection for social learning proficiencies, driving the evolution of brain and driving the evolution of intelligence. But the, the, the feedback loop is, is, is going on all the time. And, you know, once you have um, highly accurate forms of copying, this in, in turn generates um, the conditions which favor greater amounts of culture, long, longer-lasting culture, a culture that can ratchet up in complexity, what we call cumulative culture. And once you have cumulative culture, you create the conditions in which um, it's uh, advantageous to teach other individuals. Once you have teaching, then you create the conditions in which it's advantageous to um, deploy language. Language had probably originally evolved as, as a means to facilitate the, and, and, and increase the efficiency of teaching. So you can see there's this, there's this constant feedback. We do things, or rather our ancestors did things to their environment, through their behavior, through their culture. That modifies how natural selection acts back on them. And then there's another iteration where they change the way in which they modify their environment. And this feeds back to influence the, the, the evolution of their brains again. All right. Well, we have a hard break. When we get back, I want to pursue that just a little bit, that pre-language area. Um, sure. Julian Jaynes wrote a book years ago at Princeton, Origins of Consciousness, Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind, theorizing that for all intent and purposes, we used to communicate telepathically. Our guest last week had some evidence of that. So when we come back, I'm going to ask you about that. We're speaking with Professor Kevin Leyland about his life, work, and book, and it's a great read, Darwin's Unfinished Symphony. You can learn more about our guest and his work by visiting his website at darwinsunfinishedsymphony.com. Now, if you're not in a chat room, get over there, and you'll get a chance to hear Darwin's Unfinished Symphony. Uh, we'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra-prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD, and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor.
Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Kevin Leyland about his work and book, Darwin's Unfinished Symphony. You can learn more about our guest in his book by visiting his website at darwinsunfinishedsymphony.com. Now, we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some true significance to them. Music psychology, by now you know, is not just a field of research of practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior, but it is a new avocation of mine. All right, we just played some of What Did I Say by Ray Charles. So tell us, Professor, why is this music important to you, and how does it inform us about who you are? Well, I, I love um, I love blues music. I love rhythm and blues and soul. And, and Ray Charles is is one of my absolute um, musical heroes. Um, to, there's such wonderful energy uh, in in that uh, piece of music. It's so uplifting. It it just makes me smile. I particularly love the the kind of the call and response sections towards the end of it, where uh, Ray goes yeah, and the and the and the backing singers go yeah in response. And, and it's it's one that has taken on a sort of personal significance to me because uh, my kids used to used to love this piece of music too, and 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 being young kids, they loved to be um, chased around, and we used to uh, chase around. They always insisted that we were chased around to to Ray Charles, uh, and in particular this piece of music, and then we'd stop when we got to the the, the call and response bit and and just scream the yeah yeah at each other, which was which was wonderful fun. So it has. Uh, Great uh, memories for me. How great that is! It is it, like the boogie woogie blues, and I'm with you. I, I I hated to fade that music out, but I wanted to get you back on the air. And it's uh, but it's a great. Well, I, I'm piece. really grateful of you for for playing it because that's one of my true true favorites. That's wonderful. All right, sir. Origin of consciousness. That I mentioned to you before the break. Uh, yeah. Jane's and when I when I spoke to Professor Jane's um, years ago now, um, he indicated to me that he was quite certain that there was a period in our evolution pre-language where we communicated uh, by thought. Uh, without a language, that would leave us communicating by picture or some sort of thing like that. In your own work, what are your thoughts on the pre-language era of our uh, evolution? Well, um, I mean, firstly, firstly, um, consciousness and and, um, communication by uh, telepathy are not domains that I I really feel I have anything to contribute on. I mean, you know, in this respect, I'm going to disappoint you, I'm afraid. It seems to me that as an evolutionary biologist, we, you know, particularly one that takes a comparative perspective and studies um, other animals, it, it's really hard to say anything concrete about consciousness because we don't have a way of measuring it in animals. So uh, until such a time as someone comes up with a consciousometer which we can apply uh, to, other, to, to other species, then it really is a domain that's sort of outside my area of science. Um, and when it comes to precursors of language that's that's a in a, in a way more interesting question to me but i i, I find this notion of, of communicating to uh, telepathically uh, slightly mysterious I mean, we we do know that uh, all other animals have means of, of of communicating they'll have um alarm calls and you know um courtship and mating communication signals and dominance displays and and, and so on and so forth but actually, um, you know, in, in my book, I, I refer to, I try to be quite honest about how the field has gone. I, I refer to a number of kind of conceptual wrong turns that I think 
we as a scientific community have made um, in our investigations. And I think one such wrong turn, if you like, was thinking that the evolutionary roots of language was in um, was in the communication of other animals. And, and of course, that's a very natural way to think. But I I don't see the origins of language that way at all. I see the origins of language actually coming through social learning and teaching. So um, to, to get there, we have to sort of take a little um, uh, diversion. Um, if, if you want to understand the roots of human culture, human culture is based on um, inventing novel solutions to challenges, things like innovation, and propagating those novel solutions through learning what we call social learning. So if we want to investigate that in animals, that's something we can look at. We can look to see for, look for examples of innovation and social learning in other animals, and there are many such examples. So um, some of these I, I think are really quite charming. So um, Japanese crows, for instance, have, um, some Japanese crows have invented this habit of um, using cars as, as nutcrackers. So what they do is they, they take these nuts, which are too tough for them to break in their bills, and they put them on the roads. The cars run them over, and then they go and retrieve the nuts. Uh, that's a very clever way for them to get access to a food that they wouldn't otherwise do. That's an innovation. Uh, another nice example, it concerns one of Jane Goodall's chimpanzees um, called Mike, who um, who invented this this. Uh, uh, dominance display, which involved banging together two empty kerosene cans, which made this very loud noise and allowed him to to intimidate his rivals, and he shot up the dominance display and became alpha male in in sort of record time. So animals have these these innovations, and and in a subset of cases, we can see these novel behaviours spreading through the population through social learning. Most of them, of course, are foraging behaviors. They, they invent new ways of um, accessing foods and processing those foods, and they, they spread through social learning. And when we count up, you can, you can, you can ask, well, are animals all, all equally good at social learning and innovation? It turns out the answer is not. When you, when you count up how many innovations different species are, are, are producing and how much social learning they're engaging in, you see something quite interesting. You see a strong correlation with brain size. And, with uh, what? Say that again. With, with brain size, with the, with the oh. size of the animal's brains. Yes. So in, in both birds and in primates, big-brained animals invent more new behavior and copy each other more than do small-brained animals. And this, as I say, fits with the argument I was making earlier. It's one of the sources of evidence for the argument I was making earlier, that there's been selection for accurate, efficient forms of, of copying, which has driven the evolution of, of large brains and, and intelligence. And if, if that's going on, then you'd expect rates of social learning to co-vary with other cognitive capabilities in animals. Uh, and that, in, indeed, is what we find. We find that those primates that happen to be good at, uh, at copying each other and, and inventing new behavior also are, are the ones that are very good at using tools, also ha happen to be the ones who have the richest diet that is often requiring them to access food through complicated procedures, often live the longest lives, often are the ones that are best performers in laboratory tests of, of learning and cognition. In other words, they're, they're intelligent. So we think there's been this, this drive process, what we call cultural drive, favoring the evolution of intelligence that's driven by social learning. And um, one of the things we expect that drive to favor is, is teaching, because if, you can, if you've got a whole bunch of different foraging techniques and, and uh, hunting game and catching fish and all kinds of different um, um, socially transmitted behaviors, then there reaches a point where it's, it's ad adaptive to communicate those, those skills to your close relatives. But in fact, when you explore the circumstances under which um, it pays to teach an animal in evolutionary terms, this is quite a difficult set of conditions to satisfy, which is, which is why we find teaching is quite rare in nature. I mean, historically, it's been thought that animals didn't teach each other at all. Um, humans, of course, teach each other lots of stuff, but 
animals, um, you know, they copy each other's behavior, but the transmitter of the information doesn't usually go out of his way to ensure that the recipient uh, actually learns. But recently there have been a spate of reports of teaching in some animals, but perhaps not the ones you might expect. Um, you know, not in chimpanzees or, or gorillas or, or dolphins, but in, in ants and, and bees and meerkats. So, um, you know, we, we did some uh, analyses to try and work out why there should be this, this curious taxonomic distribution to teaching yeah. in animals, and managed to make sense of that using uh, sort of mathematical approaches, which, which established that it's, it's really quite difficult, the very stringent circumstances under which you'd expect teaching to evolve. But that once you have a cumulative culture, a culture that ratchets up in, in complexity and diversity over time, you know, um, think about our culture, we're constantly producing better computers and, you know, more, more slimline phones and so on and so forth. That's, a, that's, that's known as cumulative culture. And that's something that other animals typically don't have. But once you have cumulative culture, that relaxes the conditions under which it pays to teach. So you can see cumulative culture and teaching actually reinforce each other. They, um, they, they were expected to kind of co-evolve, both Theoretical findings suggest this, and experimental findings suggest this. So that's the context, then, in which, I'm sorry, that's a long preamble, which brings me back to the evolutionary origins of, of language. In a, you have to think about our ancestors a couple of million years ago, or perhaps a little bit less than that, who um, are engaged in a, a lot of socially transmitted behavior, things like learned foraging behaviors, hunting techniques, scavenging techniques, manufacturing a whole bunch of different tools, digging tools, cutting edges, harpoons, digging sticks and so on, um, food preparation methods and processing methods, um, all kinds of learned gestures. They would have benefited from, um, because there's so much of, the, of this culture and, and it was cumulative, they, they would have benefited from teaching. And given that they were then exhibiting a significant amount of teaching, they create the circumstance under which language becomes adaptive. Language originally evolved, I suppose, because it makes teaching more efficient. It's a, it's a more accurate way of teaching. You can, you can um, commit, you can transmit information with far greater precision with simple signs such as you know, pay attention, dig here, like this, faster, this way, not that way. Simple signs uh, can, can get across information much more accurately than any other means. It's also a very cheap way of teaching. Um, so telling someone where the food is is a lot easier and cheaper than, you know, actually taking them there. Uh, and if you want to get across something like, um, you know, red berries are, are poisonous. That's very difficult to do by other means. So, so language was adaptive, I think, originally, came along originally as a means to facilitate teaching. Now, that sounds like a, a, a story, of course, and, and um, the, the problem with um, the field of investigating the evolutionary origins of languages, there the are all kinds of stories that have been proposed as to as to um, you know why language evolved. In fact, um, the problem is really that there's there's so little data that almost any hypothesis goes. So what we've tried to do in addressing this concern is come up with a number of different criteria that a satisfactory theory of language would meet. Um, uh, a satisfactory theory for the original uh, function of language. And, um, you know, there are a number of criteria that, that uh, I outline in my book. One, for instance, is, is that it, it should explain the, the uniqueness of language. So um, we have to not only understand why language evolved in, um, amongst our ancestors, but why it didn't evolve in any other animals. So let's say you have the hypothesis that language evolved um, 
um, it, in the context of mate choice because it allowed males to kind of woo their partners and males who were particularly good at uh, charming the females had a selective advantage. That sounds like a plausible story. But okay. it wouldn't meet our criteria because such uh, an explanation ought to equally apply to any other animal. And likewise, most animal communication is... Um, uh, sorry, most primate communication is not learned, whereas human language is learned, of course. So learned features, as we know as evolutionary biologists, are, are, are characteristics that are uh, adaptive to allow us to track features of the environment that are changing over time, changing pretty rapidly. So that raises the question, what was it amongst the um, environmental conditions of our ancestors that was changing with sufficient frequency to um, require them to to learn a means of communication to talk about it and to go go back to the earlier criteria why didn't that changing feature of the environment affect the evolution of any other species and of course the the obvious answer to that question is that it must have been something that the ancestors that originally formulated language had constructed in their environment for themselves. That's why it didn't affect any other species. And what do they do that constructs features of their environment that that change and impact on their on their behaviour? Well, the obvious thing, as I mentioned earlier, is their culture. Their foraging, their hunting, their scavenging—all these learned skills, which were, which were transmitted through the population and which they were teaching each other—created the context in which it was adaptive to uh, evolve a more efficient and more effective form of communication that facilitated all that teaching. So that's how I view the origins of language. I find that really interesting. But now, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, sperm whales and uh, dolphins have larger brains. And we've had some experts on the show on dolphins, and they're convinced that they have their own language. Uh, in, in your view, um, do other animals, including the sperm whale and the dolphin, build even the most um, rudimentary of languages? Um, no, uh, in my view, they don't. I mean, they have they have um, very interesting communication systems. Um, many, many ev- uh, evolutionary biologists and animal behaviorists are um, fascinated by cetaceans, um, whales, and dolphins, and, and study their behavior. We have many colleagues at St Andrews um, who uh, investigate these these phenomena. None of them would make the claim. That, um, that, that dolphins or whales have language. That's a very strong claim. Um, and, you know, for sure they're communicating with each other about stuff like, um, um, you know, telling each other where they are and, and drawing attention to the presence of food and things like that. But um, language requires a little bit more than that. Language requires some sort of structure, some grammar, some syntax. And there's no evidence for anything in not just dolphins and whales, but in any other animal that resembles um, synsex. There's not, there's not the, um, the freedom to just communicate any kind of message that you get through syntax. So, um, no, we don't really have compelling evidence for language um, in other animals. And I know, um, you know, that this is something that if you study animal behavior, it comes up a lot. And of course, there's a very charming idea that um, you know, the arrogant scientists, um, you know, have, have pronounced that other animals don't have um, these these cognitive capabilities simply because they're too stupid to be able to sort of decipher the complexities of their language or of their social behaviour or their ethical or moral behaviour. Um, but in fact, the, the the reality is very different. Um, you know. My colleagues and I, um, for, for, for decades, have been, have been investigating these kinds of phenomena, and um, we'd, we'd love to find evidence for, for language and, and rich cognition of various forms in other animals, but the, 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 you know, the data is simply not there. The data just doesn't support that kind of, that kind of argument. 
Okay, great. I, you know, I could talk to you for another couple of hours. If you, I, we're not even touching the tip of the questions I've got here, but differentiate for me. Language versus mind, then. Is mind the product of the language that we build? Well, language, I think, is central to um, to thinking. Um, so language people think of generally as uh, a means of, of communication, which of course it is, but language has many, many functions. And it also organizes our thinking. So the way we use our mind is heavily dependent on our language. Now, that's not to say that other animals don't have minds because they don't have language. They just have different kinds of minds. Um, but, but that's not something we really have uh, a great deal of insight into because it's it's very difficult to to investigate the the inner workings of other animals' minds. So is the evolution of the human mind the result of the evolution of language, the building of language? Well, as I say, there's this there's this constant feedback loop that's that's ongoing. Yes, language is an important part of that of of that story. Um, once you have language. Um, which itself is uh, an adaptive response to the evolution of teaching, which itself is an adaptive response to the emergence of culture. Then you create the conditions in which you can get uh, large-scale cooperation going on. I'm sorry, you Professor. You a complex we're... society. So there's these constant feedback loops which are which are going on. So it's not it's not as if you can sort of. Um, I don't want to cut you off, Professor, but I'm. I'm afraid we're out of time, and, and, and maybe you'll come back to the show another time. The book is Darwin's Unfinished Symphony if Professor Kevin M. Leyland. It is a great read. Uh, you can tell that this man is a wealth of knowledge, and we didn't tip, you know, but touch the tip of the iceberg. Professor, thank you very much for coming to the show and for your willingness to share your work with us. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends, let them have, let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com. <laughs>